Al Jazeera podcast. Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI, and I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Your class starts January 8th. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. The U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is back in the Middle East for his fifth visit since Israel began its war on Gaza. His previous trips didn't bring any respite for Palestinians under bombardment. So what's the purpose of this particular visit? Hello, I'm Adrian Finnegan. You're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help to define major global stories. All right, let's bring in our guests for today's discussion from Reston in Virginia. We're joined by Trita Parsi, Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. From Dubai, Hafsa Halawa, an independent consultant who works on political, social and economic affairs across the Middle East, North Africa and the Horn of Africa. And in Washington, D.C., Gaudat Bagat, Professor of National Security Affairs at the National Defense University's Near East South Asia Center for Strategic Study. A warm welcome uh, to you all. Before we uh, talk about Antony Blinken's visit to the region, I, I just want to take a moment to address the targeted killing of uh, Hamza Dardou, uh, son of our Gaza bureau chief, Wael Dardou, on the very day that Blinken arrives uh, in uh, Qatar. Uh, now, previous visits by Blinken have coincided with major Israeli actions against Palestinians. Back in October, more than a million Palestinians were ordered to leave northern Gaza while Blinken was in Israel. An explosion along one of the so-called safe routes killed 70 people. A few days later, on October 17th, Israeli attacks on the Al-Akli Baptist Hospital killed 471 people. During yet another Blinken visit in November, Israel targeted a UN-run school in the Jabalia refugee camp. At least 15 people were killed, dozens more were injured. At the end of the brief ceasefire in December, Israel resumed its attacks. Its forces increased their strikes in the southern Gaza Strip a day after Secretary of State Antony Blinken urged Israel to do more to protect civilians. And now, during Blinken's latest visit, the son of our Gaza bureau chief, Hamza al-Dahru, has been killed by an Israeli airstrike in southern Gaza. Uh, Trita, are the Israelis trying to send some sort of message here, do you think? This can't be just coincidence, can it? It certainly doesn't come across as a coincidence, and it's very clear that the number of journalists killed in this conflict far exceeds that of any other recent conflict, uh, more than 100 so far. And I think it's also affected the reporting coming out of Gaza in the sense that we're seeing less images, less reporting, precisely because those who can report have been silenced. Given the fact that the Israelis are resisting even the very limited pressure that Biden is putting on them in regards to uh, how to handle the war in Gaza. It wouldn't be surprising as this is one of their efforts to up the ante right before Blinken arrives in uh, uh, the region in order to signal how much they will resist any effort by the Biden administration that doesn't come with clear pressure, such as putting the aid uh, to Israel uh, to make it contingent upon 
uh, them living up to certain standards. As long as there's no real pressure, it seems that these raiders will continue to behave in this way. We'll, we'll discuss, we'll come to, to, to pressure uh, and, and what pressure can be applied to the, the Israelis in, in just a few moments. But first, uh, Hafsa, uh, Blinken says that he'll be looking at what can be done to maximise the protection of civilians in Gaza and increase deliveries of humanitarian assistance. But with more than 22,000 dead now, many of them women and children, does that ring hollow to you? It's, it's uh, too little too late, isn't it? Well, I think it's not just too little too late, Adrian, and thank you very much for having me. I think it's also completely false. Nothing in the US's uh, real policy actions beyond certain doublespeak that we see or tweets that are written by the teams of, of everybody from the Secretary of State to the President of the United States and other members of the government seems to signal that there is any material pressure on Israel, not just to, uh, uh, to protect civilians or to prevent this level of civilian death, but also, in fact, to, to bring this war uh, to any kind of conclusion or to halt the current uh, hostilities that we see in, in Gaza or in the West Bank or in occupied East Jerusalem. At the end of the day, nothing uh, that we've seen since October 7th from anyone in this administration signals that the U.S. is anything but supportive of this war. And really, the red lines seem to hinge on how much they're willing to back the expansion of this conflict by Israel. Professor uh, Bagat, uh, just a week ago, as we were hearing, uh, Blinken approved the sale to Israel of 155mm artillery shells and related equipment, determining that the emergency required the immediate sale to Israel, thereby waiving congressional review requirements. Uh, and yet here he is in the region, supposedly to talk peace. I mean, this visit reeks of hypocrisy, doesn't it? Uh... United States has very consistent policy to uh, stop the war, and uh, it is important to point out that uh, Israel does not listen all the time to United States. And uh, in American media lately, uh, they highlighted some kind of disagreement between Biden administration and the government of Netanyahu. And I believe also it is important to understand there is difference between private diplomacy and public diplomacy. Uh, United States uh, government, it will not help to uh, go in front of camera and condemn Israel. But my understanding, senior American officials, when they meet with their Israeli counterparts, they push as hard as they can to uh, use smart weapons to minimize the killing of innocent people because escalation is against the U.S. national interest. Trita, what, what do you make of, of that? Does uh, the U.S. have any sway over the Israeli government, any leverage at all, given what we were hearing there from, from the professor, when I mean, he said that Israel just isn't listening to, to the U.S.? To what extent is the current situation directly the fault of the Biden administration's policy? How much of the blame for the current suffering in Gaza uh, does the U.S. have to bear? Well, the Israelis are not listening because they don't have to listen, because the United States is not making them listen. The idea that the United States is much tougher uh, in private may be true, but it's not tough enough because we're not seeing any effect of it. 
Reality is the United States has a tremendous amount of leverage. It is choosing not to use it. The United States has shipped 10,000 tons of weapons and ammunition to Israel since the beginning of this war. According to an Israeli major general uh, in an interview last month, he made it very clear if the United States were to halt the, the flow of weapons and ammunition to Israel, Israel would not be able to continue this fight. It's very clear that the United States has leverage, but choosing not to use it. And that raises the question that you just asked, to what extent is then the United States also responsible uh, for the killings that are taking place right now? And I think the Biden administration is somewhat nervous, as they should be, about the complaint of the uh, South African com um, uh, uh, government uh, accusing Israel of genocide and taking this to the International Court of uh, Justice. If Israel is found to be guilty of genocide, it will have implications for the United States as well, mindful of its uh, extensive aid to Israel during this period. Why, Tritta, is the US not pressuring Israel when it's not happy with, with what's going on? Well, I'm not so sure that it's not happy, because reality is, is that uh, the earlier impression that the Biden administration was trying to stop this but didn't have leverage, I don't think has been proven to be compatible with reality. Biden signed on to the Israeli military objective of eliminating Hamas. He wanted Israel to do what to Hamas what the United States could not do to the Taliban. Because of that, he has stood in the way of any ceasefire, any attempt to bring the war to an end, short of first having eliminated Hamas. And that's why I think we have to accept that the United States is actually in support of this policy. It is not trying to stop it. Hafsa, I, I know you want to come in. Let, let me just throw it back to, to Professor Bagat, though. You, you, you wanted to say something there. Thank you. Uh, there is no doubt that uh, United States has a lot of leverage. Uh, U.S. foreign aid to Israel is huge. But also it is important not to underestimate Israel as sovereign country. And Israel is one of the richest countries in the world and one of the strongest military power in the Middle East and in the world, Israel does not take orders from United States. And uh, basically, United States, like any country, does what it believes is in its best interest. And escalation in the Middle East, killing innocent people, uh, this is bad for United States. And I have no doubt that United States wants to end the war to minimize the killing of innocent people. And there are many disagreements between U.S. and Israel, one of them about eliminating Hamas. The United States does not believe that Hamas can be eliminated. Hamas is part of the Palestinian civil society. Hamas is a political military movement. And the United States, in my mind, understand that Israeli goals cannot be achieved. Hafsa, I, I, I know you wanted, you wanted to come in there, but I'll, I'll, I'll ask you another question as well. Blinken urged Middle Eastern countries to use their influence over regional actors to ensure that the conflict uh, is contained in order to prevent, quote, an endless cycle of violence. But why? Why put the onus on allies in the region when, as we were discussing, it's the US that holds the key here. If it called for a ceasefire, put pressure on Israel and stop 
using its veto at the Security Council and also stopped supplying Israel with, with weapons, the violence would end more or less immediately, wouldn't it? Uh, I agree. And I think fundamentally, to, to sort of go back, and, and I actually agree, I agree completely with Trita, but I also agree with Professor Bhagat, that ultimately, this is a US administration that over the last three years has fundamentally misunderstood all the regional players, actors and countries in the Middle East, North Africa, un misunderstood uh, national security goals, targets, misunderstood the relationships between each other and the targeted relationships with the United United States. And by extension, what Blinken has been doing on this trip, will do on this trip, and on previous trips and other visits from the Secretary of Defense and visits we've seen in the past from Bill Burns and others, is really this uh, fundamental belief that Washington still has that this region uh, revolves its foreign policy around Washington. And that simply is not true any longer. It may have been true 20 years ago. It may have been true 30 years ago. may even have been true 15 years ago. But over the last few years, we've seen a, a real reckoning of that, uh, a broader independent foreign policy emerge from individual countries. Collectively, as a region, there is a, a, a drive to, to look outwards. And the US's policies, particularly its military and security policies, have been found wanting either in the fact that the U.S. hasn't served these countries with their, with their national security interests in protecting them, particularly if we look at the last few years and the precarious uh, uh, fluctuation of relationships between the Arab Gulf countries, Iran and other spaces. Um, and primarily, the U.S. has not been seen as a country that is willing to really come forward and put its neck out and support the states that it has for decades committed to supporting, except for Israel. And since 1948, the instability in this region at its heart comes down to the illegal occupation of the Palestinian people. It always has done. And America has regularly, under all leadership, failed to come to terms with that. One would argue even the failure to enact Act, what was agreed successfully at Oslo and other major inflection points in this broader uh, conflict over the last 75 years. And now is no different. What, Pre what President Biden, what Secretary of State Blinken have been attempting to do with regional leaders is to bring them onto the same page as the United States, which is to see this war as an existential crisis for Israel, to see the uh, non-state actors in the region as behaving uh, not in uh, the national security interest or public interest of this region, which they may very well be doing. However, when the U.S. sends its warships into the Mediterranean, creates these protection forces in the Red Sea, deploys its navy to these areas, it's not received by any of these actors or even the court of public opinion as protection uh, or guardianship, as they like to call it. It's seen as provocation and antagonism. And okay. what we're seeing is the non-state actor response to that. B Professor, I saw you raise your, your eyebrows at one point there. I, I couldn't tell whether you, you were in agreement or, or not, but, but do you want to come in? Yeah, if I may, I want to make two brief points. The first point, <clears throat> the first point, the war in Gaza underscores that United States is by far the main uh, foreign power uh, with great influence, great capability to make peace or war. It is not Russia, it is not China, it is not European Union. Uh, everybody uh, comes to Washington when Secretary Blinken goes to the region, everybody pays attention. It is United States. The second point is uh, there is no doubt that uh, United States has close ties to Israel 
but also uh, the conflict in Gaza highlights the failure of Arab countries to lobby United States. Uh, United States has very close ties to Saudi Arabia, to Qatar, to UAE, to Egypt, to almost all countries in the region. Uh, they have not been able to convince the administration, the Congress, the American public to take even-handed, balanced approach to the conflict. And Arab countries have to use the leverage they have to uh, lobby in more effective way the American people, the administration, and the Congress. Uh, Trita, you recently wrote at thenation.com uh, that President Biden refuses to pursue the most obvious way of de-escalating tensions and of avoiding American deaths. That's a ceasefire in, in Gaza. And you asked, is Israel going to drag the US into another ruinous regional war? Is it? Well, we see today that the Israelis are increasingly inclined to expand the war into Lebanon. The Biden administration does oppose that. The Biden administration is skeptical. There's an article in Washington Post today about the intelligence assessment of uh, the uh, lack of feasibility for Israel to win such a conflict. Um, and the Biden administration says that from the very outset, the Israelis had the intent, in fact, in the early stages of the war, they wanted to go into Lebanon right away but the Biden administration thwarted that. It seems, however, that we're back to square one because the Israelis are trying to do this. The U.S. does oppose it. But the question is, will American opposition to this be coupled with real pressure or will it continue to be what we have seen so far, which is that Blinken goes to the region and asks other countries to put pressure on Hezbollah, on the Houthis, on Iran, while the U.S. itself does not put any material pressure on Israel. That equation will not work in the long run. We have frankly been quite lucky so far that we haven't seen an escalation. And Hafsa? in regards oh, to the point sorry. of the ceasefire, yes. if you take a look at the um, uh, activities of Iraqi militias, for instance, they attacked U.S. troops six times the day before the ceasefire. But as soon as the ceasefire broke out, the attacks from Iraqi militias went down to zero for six days, not a single attack. Even the Houthis reduced their attacks. There was only one attack during that six period, day period that we can confidently attribute to the Houthis. It's very clear. The message from them is, just listen to what the Houthis themselves are saying, that they will cease their attacks if there is a ceasefire. And even though this seems to be the easiest way is to actually avoid an escalation. It's the one path that the Biden administration refuses to pursue, which goes back to my earlier point. There is a commitment by the Biden administration to the destruction of Hamas, uh, which is part of the reason, I think, that uh, we see the Biden administration refusing even measures that would avoid the escalation that Biden said that he wants to avoid. Hafsa, I, we already know that... that, uh, that... Uh, Blinken secured a pledge from Turkey as President Erdogan to use his country's influence to prevent the conflict broadening further. Uh, but Erdogan, as we know, is a harsh critic of uh, Washington's support for Israel's Gaza campaign. He's rebuffed US pressure uh, to cut off suspected Hamas funding, which flows through Turkey, uh, defending the group as legitimately elected liberators fighting for their land. How sincere do you think was his pledge uh, uh, to use his influence to prevent this spiralling. Uh, and what sort of reception is Blinken going to get when he lands in other regional capitals this week? 
Well, I think the, the question really is, um, you know, going back to, to Trisha's point is, what kind of leverage can you put on these non-state actors, particularly when they have very clearly defined their red lines for, for engagement? And part of what the US is failing to acknowledge is this is not just about Israel's desire to expand this conflict. This is about how much longer will the United States let this war continue and effectively on the ground end the quest for Palestinian statehood? Because that will throw us into a perpetual cycle of violence, uh, insurgency, uh, threats of violence and acts by these non-state groups in the region, that could become a perpetual cycle that never ends. And part of what is mind-boggling, if you give Washington the benefit of the doubt that it does not seek that uh, end resolution is, well, what does it seek? What does it seek to, uh, to, to achieve in Gaza? What does it seek to achieve in this uh, relationship with Israel? What is it seeking to uh, protect effectively, even for Israel? the broader relationships that the regional parties that are um, uh, either normalized or uh, peaceful allies or peaceful partners and neighbors of, of Israel, what uh, what can they what what kind of part of the relationship can be salvaged after all of this beyond just looking at the pressure on uh, groups like Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis, uh, the Hashti Shabi in Iraq. I mean, their ideology, will uh, is is very clear their red lines in this conflict has been very clear their uh, their raison d'être for, for decades has been very clear that's going to be very difficult to change and you know learned people have long said the response and the answer to quelling the power of these groups is to seek a two state solution clearly that is not what is being sought through this uh, this conflict through this escalation of violence through this bombardment by either Israel or Washington uh, the United States and European allies what that then extends us to, to ask is, what about the effect on other countries and what kind of reception does Blinken receive in other capitals? Well, what kind of reception has he received in capitals in the last uh, eight to, to 12 weeks? It certainly hasn't been very pleasant. It certainly hasn't been very welcoming. He's been publicly rebuked by the foreign ministers of Jordan, of Egypt. He was uh, you know, embarrassed by the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. All of this feeds into a broader court of public opinion, not just at a moment where anti-American sentiment has been very high and it's certainly sky high. But whilst Americans may not be seeing as much of this conflict on their screens here in the region, we're consuming it still 24-7 as if it's October 8th. Yeah. The uh, level of violence, you you mentioned uh, the, um, and you mentioned Hamza Dahdouh, who was, uh, who was uh, killed this afternoon uh, by an Israeli airstrike. I mean, this stuff is playing on our TV screens regularly. Mm -hmm. Arab social media is constant okay. on this. Yeah. Sorry. I, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we're almost out of time. Professor, I'll, I'll give you the, the last word. Uh, is this visit by Blinken to the region then anything more than cheap window dressing? I mean, is his diplomacy going to be going to be able to do anything to ease the plight of those suffering in, in Gaza? Is it going to bring about a ceasefire? Is it going to be able to prevent this conflict from spiraling into a, a, a wider regional one? No, absolutely. It is not window dressing. Uh, it is because it's very complicated. It takes time and uh, there is no guarantee that it will work. It succeed. Uh, it is the fourth visit of the secretary in just a few months. And it is also important that Arab countries like Israel do not take orders from 
United States, uh, Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, all of them, and Turkey, all of them resisted American pressure. And uh, I, I want to end on positive note. There is generation gap, generation change in the United States. Young people in the United States, all over American universities, are demonstrating against Israel. So uh, it is very sad what is happening now. Many innocent people are dying. But in the long run, I believe uh, there is change in American public opinion, and this will be reflected in American policy. That I'm afraid we must end the programme. Many thanks indeed to, to all of you for being with us today. Uh, Tretapasi, Hafsa Halawa and uh, Gaudat Baghdad, uh, Bagat rather, I'm sorry. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Katia Lopez-Horayan, Veronica Pedroza and Jimmy Getahun. Studio sound was by Fazil Yahya. The programme was edited by Ahmed Etfaga, Zainab Bada and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode and thanks for listening. Tune in again on Monday for our next edition. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.